Hello, and welcome to the Needs to Know Basis series of podcasts put on by the Tech Disputes Network. Um, this series of podcasts aims to provide a very quick and summary form um, introduction to mo some of the most important uh, developments in the field of technology uh, and technology disputes more specifically and is intended as a, a useful aid to uh, all of us practicing in this field who no doubt have far too much uh, to get on top of without not too much not enough time to do so we're now um, very pleased to welcome sam roberts one of the founders of the network who um, is going to present on the wirecard uh, scandal which um, obviously is an, an enormous development in the field of fintech. Sam is an experienced commercial litigator with um, a, much, a great deal of background in technology disputes and a real passion for the area. And um, I know that he has been looking into um, the issues, the very many issues um, that, um, uh, that are associated with this particular scandal. So Sam, uh, we've been hearing a lot about Wirecard in the news. Um, but perhaps people um, aren't really entirely up to speed with the detail. W what exactly has happened? Uh, sure. Thanks, Mike. And thanks for the um, kind introduction. Um, so Wirecard is a payment services provider, uh, a disruptor in the industry um, based in Germany. Um, it's got subsidiaries um, outside of Germany, uh, including in the UK. Um, it's operating in a very important and increasingly crowded sector, rubbing shoulders with the likes of PayPal um, and other other businesses that, that perform the same same function, settling payments, taking payments from customers, paying suppliers um, outside the traditional um, remit of uh, the banks. Um, so. In terms of what's actually happened, um, quite simply, although um, the investigation's at an early stage and it might be some time before we find out the true depths of everything that has happened, um, it looks like a fairly traditional um, accounting scandal in that um, its true financial position was just quite a long way away from uh, what was recorded in its books. That's, um, that's a really helpful summary. Um, I know that Wirecard was much touted as one of Europe's leading fintechs and one of the few um, that could perhaps go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Palo Alto's finest. So um, it's obviously um, sad but also fascinating to, to understand how this all unraveled and how such a, a large um, multi-billion Euro um, valued company uh, really uh, turned out to be built on um, such shaky foundations. How exactly did Wirecard unravel? Sure. So um, it sort of all started um, actually back in October last year when the FT um, released, uh, published an article along with a number of documents that it had received from whistleblowers. Um, alleging that various things, um, but that 
for example, um, some of its contracts had been falsified and that its profits had been fraudulently inflated. And probably most alarming, um, that Wirecard had set out to deceive its auditors, um, EY. Um, so Wirecard responded at the time by alleging that the FT um, had actually colluded with um, some short sellers of Wirecard shares. Um, so obviously hitting back at the FT, um, nothing really sort of came out of that. The FT obviously denied those allegations. Um, but, you know, in, in sort of my experience dealing with, with fraudsters, it's always quite interesting because often when you accuse someone of fraud, um, what they hit back with is their, their reputation. Um, they sort of say, you know, it's, um, you know, how dare you? Um, I have an upstanding reputation. I'm sort of a professional in this field and so on and so forth. And, you know, look how well my, my shares are doing, um, which is, which is sort of what happened here. Um, but in terms of, um, that obviously didn't immediately result in, um, in what then, what then happened. Um, but it was actually the, the preparation of its, um, annual results for 2019 that led this all to unravel. Um, so it um, admitted after I think the third delay to the publication of the results that um, 1.9 billion euros of cash was missing. Um, EY said that it couldn't find sufficient evidence that the cash existed. Um, Wirecard um, initially tried to play a bit of a, uh, a, a sort of stalling game. Um, you kind of wonder what was going on because it was, you know, this, this strategy was never really going to pan out long term. Um, they said that the cash was sitting with two Filipino banks and obviously it didn't take long for those two Filipino banks to come forward and say that they had no relationship with Wirecard and, and weren't sitting on the money. And it was shortly after that that um, the whole thing just sort of fell apart. That's um, that's really interesting to hear. Uh, who who exactly has got their fingers burnt um, with all of this? What um, what what is the immediate fallout? So the immediate fallout is that Wirecard, the parent company, is in um, liquidation. Um, it's thought to be ins insolvent, which means that it can't pay to everyone um, what it owes to everyone. Um, and when that happens, there's, there's usually a sort of fairly safe bet as to who is going to have lost out. Um, obvious one is the investors. Um, they're usually um, the last slice um, to receive a payout from the, from the liquidators if there's anything left. Um, SoftBank, obviously a huge investor in the industry, um, apparently had a 1 billion US stake in the company. Um, Wirecard's uh, you know, share price, like, you, you can imagine what, uh, what the graph looked like after something like this um, was published. It's a pretty steep cliff. Um, next would be other creditors of Wirecard. So um, banks, lenders um, are a, uh, a, a safe bet to lose out. Uh, Wirecard announced that it had um, around the time shortly before the whole thing completely tanked that it had uh, 2 billion euros worth of loans, uh, which be, could be called in um, if it failed to produce its annual results on time, which is obviously what happened. Um, presumably that was some sort of event of default um, scenario under those loans. Um, you know, and other, other creditors as well, trade creditors, um, customers, um, 
as well. So in the in the UK, um, the FCA temporarily suspended to Wirecard subsidiaries um, ability to process payments. So anyone who had um, an account with those uh, subsidiaries would have been would have been stuck as well. Um, but actually, just going back to the to the banks, and I think this is a this is a really interesting point because I think it's sort of reminiscent um, of what we saw coming out of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. Um, so one of, the, one of the lenders who will almost certainly get burnt by this is a German lender called OLB, which has, uh, or had I should say, a, a sort of reputation in Germany apparently of being a fairly, fairly staid conservative um, type of place. Um, apparently there's a, there's a pun, um, which apparently makes sense in German, that the, the letters OLB stand for your grandma's bank. Um, so you sort of get the idea. Um, and um, it was, OLB was um, acquired from the insurer Allianz by a PE fund. And then ever since, predictably, um, it's sort of been trying to revamp its reputation, becoming more profitable, taking more risks. Um, and one of those risks was lending 120 million euros to Marcus Brown, who is uh, or was the Wirecard CEO, who very shortly after this all unraveled, uh, was arrested. Um, and he certainly looks to be um, very much the, the man in the crosshairs. Um, and one of the reasons why I think this particular example is really interesting is that what we saw coming out of the 08-09 financial crisis was that a lot of very similar European institutions from from Germany in particular, but also Italy and elsewhere around the continent, was that some of the sort of more traditional institutions, whether that was local municipalities or whether that was sort of um, public entities, um, you know, you had even even utility companies, publicly owned utility companies, entering into all sorts of ridiculous exotic financial products, CLOs, CDSs, CLOs of CDSs, um, and they really obviously had no business um, business doing that. And here you've got similar sort of thing. Um, I guess the key difference is that the financial product is pretty straightforward. It's a loan. But what they've done instead, the key thing they've done instead is, is, is take a gamble on um, someone who will almost certainly be named bankrupt um, as a result of this. That's, um, that's really helpful. And uh, obviously, um, always fascinating to get the personal angle on it, which... Um, which really brings me to ask, um, perhaps somewhat pruriently, who's responsible for all of this debacle? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as lawyers, it's only going to be um, a very short conversation unless we're able to talk about um, who's to blame and uh, who's going to be on the receiving end of a claim. Um, so now, because this obviously happened in, in Germany and, um, you know, I'm not a, a German qualified lawyer, there's probably a, a, a slightly narrow lawyer's distinction between talking about who's sort of legally responsible and who's going to be end on, on the uh, receiving end of, uh, of some litigation versus, you know, more colloquially, um, who's to blame for all of this. So I'm still going to talk about the, the latter. Um, obviously, um, anyone complicit in the fraud is going to be right in the crosshairs. So uh, Marcus Brown would be the, the most obvious um, suspect. But, you know, he, he had allies within the company. Um, it's pretty difficult to carry out a, a, a you know, nearly 2 billion euro fraud in a listed company without assistance. 
Um, certainly in England as well, you'd be looking at anyone who had exhibited uh, Nelsonian blindness, i.e. turning a blind eye to what was going on. I imagine there was um, a fair bit of that as well. Um, funnily enough, I, it's also um, kind of amusing that um, Marcus Brown has sort of been seen in public, photographed a lot in public wearing black turtlenecks. Now, that reminds me a lot of uh, the whole Elizabeth Holmes Theranos uh, saga, which um, hopefully our, our listeners are all pretty well familiar with. I mean, what is it with a black guy or a girl in a black turtleneck and fraud? It's just like, you know, the, the correlation is almost perfect. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, if nothing else, next time you see a, a, a CEO in a black turtleneck, just run for the hills. Um, so jokes aside, um, moving on down the chain a little bit, um, auditors will obviously also find themselves um, in the crosshairs in these sorts of situations. Um, people have already been making comparisons to Enron. I mean, that was once the sort of upstart darling of the um, the kind of energy commodities um, uh, industries using technology in advanced ways and that all unraveled and Arthur Anderson is no longer with us. Um, auditors and I'm sure EY will be saying that, uh, you know, it, it, it can't fall on their shoulders to detect fraud um, from the very people who are instructing them. Um, and that, you know, they can't be expected to, to police um, all of their clients. Um, the possibility that they might be um, they, they might be uh, deliberately misled, uh, which you know, and there's something there's something to that. But on the other hand, um, we'd already seen in October that the FT had made public some pretty damning allegations about the company. So, you know, does that does that change anything? Um, I think potentially it might. Um, and then, uh, you know, looking looking around more widely, um, you've obviously got um, investment banks who are um, promoting the shares um, of, of a company with inflated profits. Um, you know, is there a suggestion that um, they, they could have been more cautious, um, particularly where the Wirecard is, is a client of the bank in question, potentially? Um, obviously, there should be information barriers in place there but I, I, I imagine it would be pretty well known to the to the to the to the analysts promoting the shares that this uh, that Wirecard was a, was a client of that bank um, you know it wouldn't take a, a very um, adventurous claimant law firm to to start making allegations as to conflicts of interest um, and then I guess finally as well um, you know regulators um, the German regulator Bafin is taking some some flack for this uh, as well yeah, beware CEOs in black turtlenecks. If, um, if nothing else, just take that one message home, beware CEOs in black turtlenecks. It could be Steve Jobs. So. could be Steve Jobs, but you, you, you never know. Yeah. You, you never know. <laughs> um, moving on to um, perhaps sort of more, more sort of macro look at, um, at, at fintech generally. Um, Obviously, its success has been one of the uh, the talking points, perhaps, of retail uh, banking and um, in, indeed uh, finance more generally um, over the course of really a, a pretty dismal um, period of time uh, following the financial crisis. 
Does this scandal perhaps uh, call into question the fintech more generally and um, some of the the practices that that may be ongoing in businesses that in many cases, as with Wirecard, have grown very large, very quickly, um, but perhaps without the safeguards in place of more um, established, um, if less exciting, financial institutions? Um, yeah, so to give you a super helpful answer, yes, yes and no. Um, to give you a sort of slightly more more detailed answer, um, I mean, some of our some of our audience may remember the, um, the the seminar that we put on back in November about whether or not there was a tech or a, a fintech bubble, and and if so, uh, would it burst? And um, a number of the presenters um, had a fairly strong view that there was a fintech bubble, um, and is you know is this the first sign of it popping? Um, I mean, it's it's a fairly uh, harsh thing to lay at the door of the entire industry to say that this, you know, one giant um, accounting scandal, which appears to have been, you know, fraudulently perpetrated, is a sign of wider goings on within the industry and and a sign of things to come um, for the industry. So I mean, I certainly I certainly wouldn't go so far as to say that you know all all fintechs are um are susceptible to fraud i mean that would be a, that would be a ridiculous thing to or not susceptible but you know um prone to it uh, that would be a, a sort of ridiculous thing to 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 say across the industry um but you know on the on the other hand um it it is also pretty shocking to see that as you said at the beginning one of the one of the real darlings of the of the disruptive payments sector fintech industry um was brought down was brought to its knees like this i mean this was one of uh, a, a few examples of fintechs that was was listed on a major stock exchange um and i mean i think trying to draw some sort of broader cautionary tales um one of the uh, appealing aspects of of fintechs um is that at least from the uh, the perspective of traditional banks, it's very difficult to make money from retail banking services these days. Um, high street banks don't make money from cashing checks and providing interest-free overdrafts to students. Um, fintechs have a comparative advantage because they're not dealing with layer upon layer of, um, of expensive legacy software that um, struggles to talk to each other. Um, they've got fewer staff to, to, to worry about in there, you know, they, 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 they like that mentality of moving, moving fast and breaking things. Um, so the idea, at least from an investor's perspective, is that fintechs can step into these traditional banking roles and, and do so profitably. Um, I guess there are probably three areas where, um, where Wirecard um, might make you sort of think twice about this. Um, one is the danger of the following of following the crowd. Um, so we're talking about Elizabeth Holmes uh, and other um, <coughs> black turtleneck wearing supervillains um, a few minutes ago. Um, <coughs> but I mean, the, the comparison doesn't stop there. Um, you know, just because um, as as Elizabeth Holmes did, you just because you have Henry Kissinger on your board doesn't mean that you have a, a viable medtech product to sell. Um, equally, being a top stock pick um, in a fashionable industry sector doesn't mean that you're, you're actually profitable. 
Uh, I mean, the the reason the reason that Wirecard is in liquidation is that the the profitable elements of its business couldn't keep the whole thing afloat. Um, the second point, I guess, is uh, the spotlight on regulation. I mean, I think there's maybe a misunderstanding that just because fintechs operate in the same space and perform same some of the same functions that banks have traditionally done that they're necessarily subject to, to the same um, regulation. So there's a recent Bloomberg article saying um, that apparently 31% of fintech firms in Europe, which is nearly a third, aren't subject to any regulation, which I found absolutely shocking. Um, and, um, you know, just because you get a, a prepaid MasterCard through the post and it's maybe even made of metal and it's shiny and it's got a cool logo on it, um, you know, you shouldn't be thinking that it's as safe a bet as a high street bank. Um, and I think the third one, which you hinted at as well, is, um, is the pressure on fintechs to be profitable. There's a, a huge amount of uh, private equity money that's gone into this industry. Um, but you know, even where the Ubers of this world still aren't profitable, you know, decades after pushing as hard as they could, um, there's there's an excruciating pressure on on these businesses and the boards of these businesses to to try and make money. Um, and for my part, the the combination of that move move fast and break things mentality, the pressure on profitability, and Probably also the fact that these are new businesses and they haven't had their fingers burnt yet and maybe don't have the respect for compliance and, and regulation and just simply following rules um, that some of the some of the more established players in, in the banking industry have. Um, and I think, you know, overall, I think that's potentially a, a very dangerous, um, very dangerous combination for investors. Well, uh, thank you, Sam. I think that's um, that was a really helpful um overview of both the highly complex um, scandal and also some of its um, in potential repercussions for the fintech industry more generally. Obviously this is a, a very much a developing issue and we will no doubt um, hear more about what exactly happened um, or didn't happen with who was wearing black turtlenecks, for example. Yeah, well, indeed, indeed. Um, but for my part, uh, and perhaps cynically, um, it's I can't uh, I can't imagine that this will be the last scandal um, that, um, uh, that that comes out of a decade of cheap money being pumped into um, young <laughs> financial services companies. Um, most of whom uh, obviously won't be subject to the kind of scrutiny that comes with being listed on a, a public um, stock exchange. Um, and, you know, as you, as you said, shockingly, often you aren't even subject to any kind of regulatory oversight. So um, I, 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 I'm aware that there are businesses out there with customer deposits where the customers have essentially handed over their hard earned to, um, uh, to, to, to individuals um, who are neither regulated nor subject to oversight from, uh, from any greater um, body than their own shareholders. So potentially watch this space for, for more fintech fraud and mm -hmm. um, 
thank you very much, Sam, for this um, fascinating um, overview of the Wirecard scan. Thank you very much. Thank you.